Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and to do that I'm joined by Bianca Ho, the co-founder of Claire AI all the way from Hong Kong. Bianca, welcome to the show. Thank you, Graham. We're going to talk about your offering Claire AI, also, you know, what you're doing in the financial space, customizing the experience for, you know, what is often a, a challenging area, which is that interface between customers and large organizations. Um, but let's start at the, the beginning of this story with Claire AI. You know, are you an AI graduate yourself? How did you get into AI? Because it's such an area now which is hot. I'm just curious to know, how did you get into that? Were you a technical person? Were you a computer science graduate? What was your start in AI, Bianca? Yep, actually, I don't do anything. <laughs> um, in the Like, I understand um, artificial intelligence just by reading and um, talking to people, but not myself. So my co-founder, Ken, Ken Young, he's, like, really, really good, and he understands this technology really well. Um, so... I actually don't have much, you know, technical background, but I did work in a couple, you know, tech startups in the business side. Um, so there is, you know, a strong understanding of the technologies, you know, SaaS, customer service. But, you know, mainly I think I, will, I understand the problem uh, of this very well. So I would say I'm much more AI, applied AI practitioner mm -hmm. rather than the AI expert itself. Because you actually come from the finance side of the world, don't you? As well as the the startup side, especially on the the business development side, the the customer side of the world, which is kind of important, isn't it? Especially with something that's quite high tech, to actually be able to look at what this actually does in the real world and what kind of solutions it solves, rather than just how good the technology is. So let's talk about Claire AI. What exactly is it? Let's put it on the table and examine it and pull it apart a little bit. Can you tell us what mm -hmm. this does? Sounds good. So uh, at Claire AI, we build AI interaction management systems. Um, and, you know, we've come a long way. We started with a B2C product, and then eventually we ended with a B2B. Um, and now we're, you know, further expanding into that. Um, so we built the AI interaction management system that allows enterprise to control their conversation at scale. So there's a few main benefits, right, like consistency. Because uh, right now, you know, say you walk into a branch, Versus you call um, the company um, and then sometimes you email, you know, it's very different departments who are looking at that. Mm. And your um, answer is often different. And that creates an issue uh, because, say, somebody at the branch would tell you, oh, you know, you're going to um, uh, this is the way you do something. And then when you do that, uh, somebody emails you back and say, you know, this is not the way you do it. So, you know, that whole world is quite complex and it's all molded together. Mm. So that's where we see, you know, the value of giving that consistent uh, conversation. Um, I think the other part of the benefit is definitely the natural piece. Uh, we focus very much on Asian languages, and um, and Cantonese is where we started with because uh, that's the main language in Hong Kong, uh, especially servicing, you know, mass retail customers. That is extremely important to understand that, and it also, I think, the large, you know, say tech companies don't have that resource to, you know, devote to, you know, um, only a population of 7 million, right? When you look at that, it's very little. Um, so they tend to focus on, say, like, um, Germanic languages like English, um, definitely like Spanish, French, those are huge languages. Um, 
sets that are spoken by a lot of people, and that's usually where the larger company uh, spend their NLP, natural language processing, on. Mm. So that's how we came up with our niche, which is uh, Cantonese. And, of course, we have you know Cantonese-speaking engineers who can help us with that. So I think the natural piece is also the other part. So the core of what you offer at Clear AI, if I can say, is it a chatbot with other kind of services that hang off that? Is that the core offering? Yeah, so I would say the AI interaction management system can control chatbot, which is one of them. It can control other business process automations Um, because people tend to have, you know, a stigma around what chatbots are, right? Mm. And I have to say, you know, till today, um, A, languages, you know, NLP still has a lot of uh, improvement um, area, although it has come a long way in terms of understanding human languages, um, so, you know, if we say it only controls chatbot, it kind of doesn't do justice uh, to our system. That's why I would say one of them um, is that people use it for chatbots. Mm. The other part is using it as automation. Right. So it can control a whole bunch of processes as well. It, chatbot yeah. is one of those automations as well as just sort of system automations that you could, you know, just workflows, I guess, that you could. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Let's talk about why there's a need for this right now. I mean, I'm just looking at some of the data recently that Juniper Research came out with a report um, talking about chatbots in retail banking and healthcare as well, and e-commerce. He talked about retailers. And they say that chatbots alone will be responsible for cost savings of $8 billion per year by 2020, 2022. And currently there are cost savings, but they're very small compared to what the future holds for this area. What is going on? Why is there such a shift towards chatbots? What's the problem that they are solving? Yeah. Yes, I think this is, you know, what really attracted Ken and I uh, to join the space. So when we look at uh, cost savings, I think a lot of people just look at labor, labor costs, which Mm. is actually the biggest component so say, you know, um, in, in Hong Kong, again, you know, you have to, or any country per se, you have to have somebody who's local, who speaks the local language in order to understand, especially, you know, finance, right? Because it's something so close to heart. I would say, you know, um, if I'm just going to, um, you know, an e-commerce site to buy a pair of pants, right? I wouldn't mind to speak English. But when you say, oh, I'm talking about something as personal as my personal wealth, and there's some issue with the transaction, I definitely prefer using my native language. Mm. So that's why, you know, banks everywhere, you know, they always say, like, they think global, but they have to act locally. And that's why they have local people who speak local languages, like Cantonese, like Indonesian Bahasa, like, you know, Chinese, to service their local customers. So when you look at, you know, um, coming to the cost side, that is one side that, it's so expensive because you have to have somebody who speaks that local language. And in, in Hong Kong, I mean, the average salary is 11K Hong Kong dollars, um, not to mention it will be more expensive or less expensive depending on the bank. Um, so, you know, to maintain a workforce of around six, 600 to 700 people, that amounts to 18 million US dollar per year mm. just for one bank. And that is only on the labor side, right? Like they're... Uh, people tend to forget that there are um, additional costs that comes with this, right? Like, say, there's a 20% um, add-on cost for, you know, management costs, right? Telephony, you know, where the person sits, you know, you have to pay rent. Um, there are software licenses, 
Um, so there's actually a lot of the additional cost that kind of comes in with the um, with the automation piece. Hmm. So I have to say right now it's very much not yet realized because um, the bots actually don't do everything right. Like I think in the future where I see is there will be um, a kingdom of bots that each company would have and then it would very much be like right now, right? A person would have a specific skill and you know when you think about something, you would direct to that person. So I would say a bot will be trained to a way where each has its own expertise and then it will be directed to that person. Say, there's a retail banking bot, that's really good. There's a mm. credit cards bot. There is a saving account, checking accounts bot. There is a processes bot, right? Like So there will be different bots in a company that works with them and very well trained, understands the logic, um, and then uh, be able to help with each and one of us. Yeah, I want to dive into the world of those bots in a minute and find out a bit more about some of the examples in which they use. Cause I think it's fascinating. I mean, people are aware of maybe the very basics interactions with the bot, but let's sort of explore that a little bit and go further and find out where that could go. You know, we've used, we use AI in, in our business, in, which is effectively a media business. Um, mm. There's a lot of workflows and processes. And the one thing I found is, is beyond the labor saving you know, costs as well. There's also this issue, and you sort of touched on it earlier, um, but if I can give it a name, just best practices. You mm. know, when you um, have a process which is repetitive, you know, you could outsource that to somebody, and often that was the case in outsourcing to people in the Philippines or mm-hmm. in India, and, and somebody would just follow that process. But often, you know, a, a workflow, an automated workflow could do that better if you could actually identify what that best practice was, you know, you know, step one, this, step two, this, step three, this, and so on, and actually document that and automate that process, it could do it better than a human being. I can imagine with complicated processes and finance and retail as well, you know, you could end up not just saving money, but I guess avoiding the, the error that human beings bring into the process as well. So I'm just sort of speculating how else bots could be used. So let's talk about, that I mean, let's talk about some of the examples and where you could use a Claire AI bot, so you can just sort of illustrate it for the listeners, and then we can maybe explore a little bit what the future holds in that that area. Yeah, sure. I think well, first of all, bot is still you know a very nascent technology. I would say bot you know has been around for a long time, but when it comes to a point where a retail bank or you know anyone in the financial institution space have to think about building a bot by themselves is really you know these two years um so that's why i think the first um you know types of bot that we built is definitely low iq right like it only focuses on faq Mm. um it serves information on your public web um so you know people look at it as much less risk Uh, i think that is definitely I mean, after uh, the Asian financial crisis, that is definitely, risk is definitely on the top of everyone's mind, right? Like, I mean, the most jobs that has been increased is definitely compliance uh, within a bank. Um, So I think risk is, you know, the number one kind of issue that they look at, and we look at de-risking for our clients. So I think the first spot that we've built actually is in the FAQ space. So it covers everything on the public website. Um, It is extremely limited, so it doesn't, you know, answer anything wrong. So that's the first one. Uh, the second ones that we are building is actually building much more um, that serves a much stronger business case by giving quotations uh, to our end users. Uh, 
So it actually gives, um, you know, it takes a couple inputs and then give quotation to um, the user. But what we found is, um, and interestingly, you know, if you just automate the quotation process, actually people don't really like it. Uh, the reason is people always have one or two questions that they always want to ask before they buy that product. They're just like not secure about the product, right? Like if they, obviously, if they're a returning customer and they understand your value proposition very well, you know, they'll go ahead and buy it. But if as a new customer, uh, even for something as vanilla as a travel insurance, I probably want to ask, you know, oh, I'm going to do scuba diving this time. You know, is that even covered um, in the travel um, policy? Hmm. So that's what we found um, that helps companies make better, uh, faster decisions uh, because it generates revenue, but also is moving much more towards the pre-sales um, and sales assistance space. Right. So let's just expand that a little bit. You talk about using it as pre-sales. It doesn't actually do the selling itself. Is that what you're saying? It does sort of all the heavy lifting for a human being or not. I mean, how does that work? Yeah. So, you know, for example, I'm just going to give you a very generic example. So, for example, um, uh, it does, it actually does sales, but a lot of times we need the confirmation from the client, (laughs) which I think, again, it comes back to the risk, right? Like you need an audit trail. So, for example, if I were a customer and I bought this and I'm like, oh, you know, the bot has um, misrepresented me or misunderstood me uh, and, you know, went ahead and buy it, which is not the best thing. <laughs> and again, right. they're de-risking. So that's what we think of. Um, it does help them to do all the heavy lifting, figure out right, the right plan, um, to give them the quotation, to you know provide details about it. But once it comes to purchasing, it would follow the traditional uh, servicing, uh, like purchasing route. So right. Right. Meaning you would need to confirm that, you need to key in your information um, in uh, online, uh, in a separate web page, and then everything is with the existing audit trail. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's an important point, isn't it? I mean, mis-selling of financial products is a is a legacy for the, the industry, which still haunts it today. And I think yeah. they're very cautious about it. And they're very cautious about selling anything because they know 10, 15 years later, customers can come back with a class action case against a bank or yeah. a lender, for example. Okay, yeah. so... I think it's very interesting because, you know, uh, people are, uh, look at bots and they, they look at artificial intelligence and they, they wonder if everything's going to be automated. But, mm. you, know, you know, my view on this is that I think AI would do a lot of the heavy lifting. But at the end of the day, humans will still trust humans when it comes down to basic interaction. You know, so sales will still be human being to human being where it's not a transactional sale where it requires a bit of trust, for example. It's not a, a simple buying and selling of a commodity type item and you know there'll still be human relationships and like for example doing this interview now it'll still be two human beings talking but ai will do a lot of the background work to make that possible in the same way you know a a bot could for example arrange a meeting between two people yes as we've seen with like for example ev ai yeah. uh, you know um, praveen was on the show earlier you know those yeah. examples but at the end of the day it's still two human beings meeting each other it's not two bots meeting each other so i think you know those in the industry have a better understanding that you know this is not going to completely automate everything what it's going to do is automate the tasks which are of lower value to leave mm-hmm. more time in theory for the higher value human to human analog tasks right so i'm curious to know how you think this will develop from your perspective it seems like 
you know, you're developing bots and platforms and getting into financial institutions. And once you have a foothold there, you, you know, and you build trust with that financial institution or that retailer or that e-commerce provider, you know, once they see the capabilities of what you're doing, the chances to grow that out and expand within the organization are huge, aren't they? I mean, do you have any thoughts on how that will progress for you? Yeah. Um, well, so I think, you know, um, I'll address, you know, those two, essentially two questions. Like one is how do we see AI? And then the other part is also how do we expand? Um, I would say, you know, I used to use this example, right? My, when I was really young, uh, my grandma is appalled by how bad my mathematics is. Right. And I, I mean, it's not bad, right? Like, it's just I use a calculator. And obviously, she can do that calculator much faster, more accurate than I do. Mm. Um, and I, I see that as um, she's like, you know, why can't you just let, you know, calculate in your heart, which uh, drives her crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I told her, I was like, you know, it's very easy to access a calculator, um, not to mention, you know, I mean, smartphone has been around for 10 years and I'm like, you know, you can really just like you know, press a couple of buttons. It's pretty easy. Um, so that's what I see, right? Like I would see, uh, I don't really see, you know, calculator taking her job away. Mm. Um, it's very much a complimenting role. Um, and even with uh, when the uh, ATMs, you know, automatic teller machines are around, actually there are more tellers jobs um, because mm. it's much more. Um, you know, they will handle much more complex things, right? So I would say when it comes to automation, that's what I see. You know, it has always been, you know, the computer. It doesn't really take away my job. It makes my job easier. Um, and it gives me a tool to do that, you know, anytime, anywhere. But it doesn't really take away my job. So I would agree with your point where it does complement. Um, the issue with that is that the trust and the critical thinking is definitely, I can definitely see it for myself because mm. I started driving when the GPS was really prevalent and when the um, when the uh, iPhone has been around. So every time I just key in this, you know, um, uh, address in the uh, Google Maps or Waze and then I'll get there, right? So I have never really thought about, you know, the worlds and it kind of numbs my mind around directions. Mm. And I think that comes to haunt me uh, seriously um, that I don't read a map that well. Uh, but, you know, I think that comes to us to make the decision on how do you critically think about, you know, um, information, right? Because right now, if I ask Siri something, it gives me a direct answer. Right. And whether the direction, direct answer is the right one, right? I think that is extremely important uh, for the next level generation to come into work and to think about that. Um, and a lot of these, say, lower level jobs or more entry-level jobs has been replaced by an automation bot. So how do they train up that skill? Mm. So that that is all, you know, I, I think that's very much a phenomenon that I'm observing and also thinking very much about. Uh, when you talk about, you know, the second part of that question, which is uh, expanding within a bank, I do think, you know, the most important currency of all time is still trust. You know, I think that has never changed in human. Um, you know, obviously you can trust an Instagram photo. You can trust a lot of different things, and it depends on what trust we build in. And I would say for all our clients, um, I'm really happy to say we have all expansion opportunities within them. You know, it might start with a very small project, but once they understand the technology, see our back end, you know, see the consistency, understand it is able to solve a lot of these issues that they're seeing, um, then they give us more business. So you know, expanding to across geographies, 
expanding to across line of businesses. Um, so I think that's very much a benefit that we see um, in terms of you know getting into a financial institution, mm-hmm. which is hard enough, right? Like I mean, signing all those papers and it's almost like signing your company away because yeah. their terms are so tough. Um, but you know, once you do that um, and come to uh, a mutual term, right? Like they respect you as um, I would say, you know, in the past, it's very much a vendor relationship. Right now, we much hope it's much more a partner relationship because they know that we're at the forefront and they have to use us um, to deliver. So I think that's very much what we observe. Let's talk about a little bit how you got into that space because you, I mean, you talk about getting into financial institutions. You do have experience working in financial institutions yourself, right? I mean, you worked at JP Morgan for some time. Yeah. Um, You've also worked in the customer service side of things with Zendex, for example, the business development. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the genesis of Claire AI with you in your trajectory and where you were going? How did that sort of fit into your background? Was it sort of a natural yeah. extension of what you were doing or something that just sort of came into your world and it sort of changed everything? It's curious to know how that worked out. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I think that's definitely... I tend to think about this. I was like, how did I get myself into this um, horrible position? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, So um, I would say, you know, sometimes we kind of like go through life um, and we look back. And I think very much to, you know, Steve Jobs quote, like it connects the dots. Um, Mm. I would say actually I started my um, – at a university, I had two jobs to choose. One is Tencent. I'm regretting that, <laughs> not joining Tencent. And then the other one was J.P. Morgan. So my conviction at that time was that um, I will get a much better exposure at J.P. Morgan. Understanding, say, corporate structures and financial institution is, you know, the core of Hong Kong's economy. So that's why, you know, I decided to join J.P. Morgan right off the bat. There's much more training, which I think till today that, you know, stands true, right? Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, at J.P. Morgan, I realized uh, every day, you know, even if I reading, if I was reading the Wall Street Journal, I would read the tech column. And I only really care about the tech column. And as my grandma has said that early on, you know, I'm not very sensitive to its numbers uh, that much. So I realized, you know, that is uh, private banking. A, I meet, you know, a lot of great people, smart people. You know, our clients are, you know, top of the world. They are like billionaires and millionaires. Um, so I learned a lot from them and I realized, you know, that's not something I want to do on a daily basis, at least not at this age, right? Like I graduated at 20, uh, 20 years old. So I was quite young at that point. So I decided, you know, that's not something I wanted. And then I then ventured into, um, a Hong Kong tech company called OneSky, which they do translation SaaS. And through there, I met the first, uh, co-founder, uh, uh, the first employee of Zendesk. Uh, Michael, so uh, very much a, still a mentor of mine, um, and he was like, you know, why don't you come to Zendesk to you know help? And then at that time, I actually wrote up a Google Doc. I pulled it up uh, recently, and I still kind of look at it. It's funny. I wrote down you know what I need in order to be a founder, and I wrote down a couple of qualities. I compared against both jobs, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn from the best of the best. Um, which Zendesk uh, did list um, in New York Stock Exchange, and I have huge respect for the co-founders, which mm. I work closely with. Um, as well as Michael, put, right? put, yeah, let's go go into that. What were those qualities that you wrote down? I'm curious to know if you, what you put on that list. Yeah, so it changed, actually. Um, 
from what I see now. So I p- wrote down finance. Hmm. You know, managing finance is important. Uh, starting a new business, um, like in terms of the skills, I would say it's like, um, I okay, I have to pull that up because that is too golden. So actually, give me one second. I'm just going to pull that up. Um, but actually, it, it's interesting to uh, think about it now because I actually – thought the skills that are important today mm. are different, right? Like I would say today, I would definitely think storytelling is one of the most important skills ever um, in this, you know, crowded space. Um, and then um, also I think negotiation is also the other one that's extremely uh, important, um, at least, you know, from my day-to-day role now. Okay, so I pulled up this document. This is then- what you wrote back when? Back at, let me see, when I first edited, 2015. Right, okay. Right, okay. Yeah, so I wrote, skills I need to become an entrepreneur. So the priority of skills I bring to the table. So, you know, as I have always realized, I will definitely not be the technical co-founder. Mm-hmm. And for me to, you know, be a world-class te- uh, technical person in any type of space, it would take me at least six years, which is probably, you know, it's almost like way too long and you're way too equipped for the role and then um, you're not ready at that time, right? So you might have other burdens. So that's what I decided. So, okay, so I'll say. So I would say uh, market understanding or discovery. Um, so that's the first skill. And then breaking it down into market growth, problem solved by the startup, and then clients I will know. So I also you know, thought about, you know, being a business development role, who are the people that I'll, you know, interface with on a day-to-day basis and whether that can help me grow any type of businesses later on, right? So whether I'm talking to the head of customer support or if I'm talking to the chief digital officer, I think that's quite different um, in terms of the exposure. And then I would say fundraising is another skill um, that I think was quite important uh, in terms of being an entrepreneur. And the third component was finding talent to work with you. So whether it will expose me to the right circle that I'll know a lot of people who can come to work with us uh, today. Right. So you identified this list of skills. You had this opportunity at Zendesk as well, which is a great company, as you you rightly said. It gives you exposure to a lot of different organizations as well. Mm. And then what happened with the Claire AI story? Where did that come into your trajectory? Because that was yeah. August 2016, you actually made the leap. Yes. So actually, um, Taclo, who has been on your uh, mm. podcast, introduced uh, myself to Ken. So I knew Tac from being in Zendesk. Um, and Ken also knew him from, I think, Techstars in London. Um, so he was like, oh, Ken is looking for a business co-founder. Why don't you talk to him? Mm. In the beginning, it was very much like, oh, uh, he's looking for a growth hacker. And I'm like, I'm nothing but a growth hacker. <laughs> right, right. Because I've never been in the marketing side, right? So, um, nor do I know uh, coding in order to do that efficiently. So Ken actually, um, you know, we, uh, we sat down, we met, um, and then he began talking about the product. Uh, and I was like, oh, why don't we, you know, start together by, you know, attending hackathons and um, trying out projects, um, applying to accelerators, so it was the moment where Tack was like, oh, you got into Xeroth AI, which is the first, um, we, we were in the first batch. Yeah. And I was like, oops, 
okay, it seems like I have to do full time. So, <laughs> so yeah. do you when you started your conversations with Kenneth, it wasn't like you were already ready to jump in feet first full time. You already had a job elsewhere, right? Or you yeah. were working on something else. So, but it sort of dragged you in. Yeah. So. Well, Ken, yeah, like in the beginning, it was not like, oh, I was very ready to, you know, quit my job uh, because I very much like uh, the working environment at Zendesk. I work very closely with the CEO, so Mikkel teaches me a lot. Um, so that's why, you know, I was very hesitant in the beginning. Mm. Um, and the more I work with Ken, I really like um, working with him. And I think, um, you know, there's one part of him being a tech guru and he understands these technology really well. But I think the other part is we complement each other very much. Um, you know, the small things would be like he eats rice every day. I eat noodle on a daily basis. So we're very different, right? We're right. almost like at the second end, uh, two different ends. But every time when I go to a meeting, I'm so thankful that, you know, I work with this person um, so closely because really, you know, we um, I learn so much from him on a daily basis. Like even though, you know, I, I use our product on a daily basis, um, even when I'm sleeping, but he really um, every time brings something on the table in terms of like technical knowledge and understanding of client. And he always challenges challenges me, and I think that's painful at times, right? Like, uh, but it's always we very it. yeah. good to have that conversation. So I'm yeah. very glad to have somebody who can have that conversation. And uh, even if I give him, you know, like positive, um, like uh, constructive feedback, uh, he takes it very well. So. I think that very much built our company, you know, to be very pragmatic. Um, I think anyone who's met our, our, uh, us would know that, you know, we were very pragmatic. We we're very curious um, as well. We stay on top of the newest technology. And I think that's absolutely important in our company culture. When you sat down with Ken originally and he presented you the product or his ideas about the product, and he would have done that from a, an engineer or a technician's perspective, and said, this yeah. is what it is. This is the problem that it's solving. This is all the, the great things that it can do. And obviously that impressed you. And there was that conversation about the growth hacking as well. And you realized, well, that's not you because, yes. you know, you don't, you know, you don't have that background, but you come from a different background. When you sat with Ken at that table, I, I want to know, and I'm sure the listeners want to know as well. What, what did you say in terms of, look, this is what I can do. And this is what I think you need because you know what you've identified talking about your relationship with Ken is like that core that core you know nucleus of a a startup where you have two people with complementary skills and uh, complementary personalities as well you know that you get on well and you know it, you're different types and that sort of yin yang that you need for a a startup to work what did you pitch to him and said look this is what you need this is what I can bring to the table yeah so I don't think I pitched, um, or at least I didn't think so. I need to ask him a again. A soft pitch. Yes, a soft pitch. Um, actually, so we were experimenting very much on the B2C product in the beginning, um, and I actually don't think it works. Um, so I did try my best uh, to promote it to my friends. So basically what it did in the beginning was that if you connect your bank account to our chatbot, you'll be able to ask uh, different things like what is my latest inquire, uh, like account balance um, and, and all of that. So um, so that was our first product and the one that he brought up. So I did connect my bank account and I did test it out 
and it worked. Uh, but I would say, you know, without knowing him, I would definitely not connect. So I, it comes back to the trust issue. Mm. Um, and we, we did, you know, look at different things and we got into another, uh, su- um, accelerator called Supercharger, which, um, connects us to our first customer, which is Fidelity. So, um, that is where we decided to, you know, fully, you know, focus on the B2B efforts. And that's also where I think my forte is much more on. Mm-hmm. So I did tell him, you know, uh, we just had a casual conversation, actually. Uh, it was very much like getting to know each other, um, um, whether I, I would be interested in you know, how should we work together. Um, so we, we proposed, you know, very you no know, baby steps uh, to start with. And then uh, we get to know each other better um, through that process. Mm-hmm. And do you see yourself as the... Okay, let's just back up a little bit. Often I see in startups where you have two people, and I'll simplify this, and forgive me for oversimplifying this. Yeah, that's... But you have a situation where you have two people in a startup. You have one person often who makes the widget and one person who sells the widget. That's often the case, you know, in some form or another, even though they may not consider themselves the engineer and the salesperson. That's effectively what you have. And even if you go back to some of the great partnerships like in Sony... You know, that's what it was, you know, two people who, you know, have complementary skills. Do you see yourself as that person who sort of is more of the front facing aspect of the startup? Yes, definitely. I think actually we resonate with really different people, which is good. So we, you know, both (laughs) a bigger part of the market. Um, uh, I would say I very much help do the hiring, you know, I, I just tried my best to make the company work, right? Like, you know, make sure that we're professional, make sure we hire enough people, make sure we have the right space, like the operational piece. Then the other piece is definitely selling the product. Um, I think the operational piece is very much ignored uh, or people don't really see it. But, you know, once you have those, you know, uh, fundamentals uh, ready, uh, it makes it so much easier to scale the company. Mm. So, so that's what I see myself doing much more on the sales side and thinking and working with our business team on how to, you know, tackle the market. How do you make it faster? Uh, how do you make it better? Who do, who should we talk to? You know, and obviously I know, I, I still think this is true, but I think the founder would be the best per, um, salesperson for the, um, for the application, right? Because sure. most of this, um, you know, more from the front and back, but, they always bring in extra value, right? They'll yeah. be like, like um, you know, this is something that has happened in the past. You know, we had a sales who worked in this industry for 20 years, so she definitely knows a lot of the contacts. Um, and then there are, like, newer people who join our team, and then they would bring new new concepts and ideas. Hmm. Um, so I, I would say very much the, um, well, obviously the sales of the product, talking about it, uh, attending um, conferences, events, and get the word out, and then uh, and then the hard work is <laughs> much more about our team. Yeah, I mean, it's really valid points that you mentioned that the, the founder is the best salesperson. You know, she's the one that brings the stories and the trust to the table as well. You know, mm-hmm. that can't be matched by anybody else in the organization. So it, mm-hmm. it's so important. How, I'm, I want to know how you actually sell a product like this. Not do you not need to go into specifics, but. Yeah. You know, to put you on the spot, if I may, Bianca, is that, you know, if you could just do one activity out of all the activities that you do, mm. and you only were allowed to do that one to sell this product. Yeah. So of all the things that you do do, which one would you pick? Because 
I know founders would be really keen to know your answer because a lot of founders in this situation, they try a lot of different things and they're not always sure which works. It's sometimes a combination of things, but often there's, you know, it's, it's an 80, 20 thing. And there's that one button that they push, which generates most of the sales. Mm. You know, it could be going out and do the conference stuff. It could be, you know, writing the book or the white paper. Or it could be knocking on the doors, you know, but yeah. I can't imagine you can rock up to Queen Square and knock on HSBC's <laughs> head office, yeah. can you, and ask for a meeting? Or maybe you can. What, yeah. was it, what would you pick as your one activity? It's a bit of advice for founders. Yeah, I would say uh, make your existing customer really happy. <laughs> mm. I think that is important. Um, the reason is, you know, even if I get, you know, complaint phone calls, um, which I do, <laughs> which is part of, you know, grow, um, growing, um, I think I thank my customers every day. And they are really the people who tell others, you know, right now we obviously, you know, we do a lot of events, but, you know, sometimes events are quite elusive, right? Like, um, it's not like you get to meet everyone at the event. It's not like you know everyone um, at the industry as well. So sometimes you don't know who you're talking to. So there's a lot of that, right? Um, there's ambiguous. But of course, it does help getting your word out to, say, a, an audience of 200 people at one time. Um, I would definitely think, you know, reserving that time with your customer is definitely the best because they are the people who use your product on a day-in, day-out basis. They give you – the the uh, suggestions that they give you are the best, right? Like what, you know, it's definitely from knowing your product very well. Sometimes they spot out things much faster than we do. Like, because I look at it every day, right? Sometimes I become um, not as sharp when it comes to reacting to a problem. So when they see something not working or something um, dysfunctioning, they would definitely be the first person to raise. Um, although that is, you know, an extremely painful process, I, I do think making your existing customers happy is the most important and it would get your word out. And I would say now we, you know, I think I would say, um, 90% of our, uh, businesses inbound. So it's all, um, we do a, a little bit of the Google ad word, but not a, as much. Um, but obviously I would say that is very much the, the core of, what um, I think at least an early stage founder should focus on. Mm. And then once you have a tested product, once your product is working, right, once you have identified your um, right audience, then, you know, go really hard and churn on that marketing engine. Right. And do you structure a time for that when you talk about, you know, uh, working with your existing customer and just sort of listening to them and trying to step into their shoes, empathize with them? How does that work? Is it just when people email you or do you go to the customer's office or do you, you know, have an hour? Because I've seen people do lots of different examples of this and, you know, obviously it works different for different people. So I'm always keen to learn what sort of examples are out there. Yeah. Is it ad hoc with you or do you structure that? Yeah. So uh, it's much more um, making them happy because I think making them happy is quite different for each and one of the clients or some would be, Oh, don't talk to me. I don't want to meet you. All mm. I want is the product to work. Um, then some of them will call you. Some of them will email you. So I think very much like making sure that they know you're on the top of, um, you, they are on the top of my mind mm. and making sure that we help them every way we can. And I think also the other part is communicating the limits of your product. Mm. Uh, I think that is very much, 
sometimes, you know, you overpromise and your team would actually suffer. Um, and I think very much that's true for um, as the client facing side, right? Because I would say, oh, this is working. And then when I go back, the engineering team's like, no, this is not. Um, and that actually gives them too much more extra work. <clears throat> so that's what I realized <clears throat> in terms of communicating is not only saying what you can do, but also the limits. So people know oh, what they can play with. Right. Um, in terms of seeing them, right, I would say I see at least one client a day. Um, if there are, you know, days where I just need to kind of stick my butt and, uh, you know, focus, uh, I would say then then um, that's actually uh, – but usually we do see clients at least once a day. Um, so clients, prospects, partners, um, anyone. See them once a day means what? It real uh, analog offline? Um, well, I would at least, you know, get on the phone with them. Right. Uh, but um, – definitely meet them so yeah. multiple because we have multiple clients so we you know see them uh throughout the week right right so do you spend a lot of your time out the office going from office to office yes okay. i do yeah, yeah. I, I mean th- these are sort of the the mechanics of being a startup founder which sometimes people don't talk about and i think it's really important to understand especially what you're doing if you're going out and meeting your clients every day Mm. You know, that's indicative of somebody who's gathering a lot of insight because it's so easy and it's so comfortable to sit behind the computer screen, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes. Especially when you're working on an app. It's like, okay, you could easily get into that mindset where the clients become almost a little bit of the messy, untidy part of the business, which, you know, they sort of mess things up. I'll just sit behind yes. it. This screen and be happy. And we've got, as founders, we have to force ourselves out there, right? You know, and we have to. You know, when we had a research business many years ago, you know, one of, we had a big sales force. And one of the things we said is that, you know, we'd have one day a week, like, for example, if it was a Wednesday or a Thursday, we said, look, we don't want you in the office. And yeah, like, just get out there. Yeah, if I see your ass in this office on a Wednesday, like, I want to know why. And people are like, you know, okay, that's not what I've been used to. But they got used to that sort of culture that they had to get out there. Okay, I've got to get out on a Wednesday. Well, I've got to go and book some meetings then. Yeah. So you've got to kind of force yourself out there because the default is to sort of fall back into your comfort zone, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think our – and it's um, important for me to take note of, like, feature requests. Um, but I think the most important is understanding the why. Mm. Um, you know, why are people using you? Why do people care? What was their previous experience? Um, why do they want that feature for? Um, how does it help them? And I think understanding the why is extremely important because in our product, there is, you know, multiple things, right? There's analytics, which really, you know, management cares, you know, or actually customer support team cares too, because they want to tell them, oh, we've been doing our job and I want to put this in my KPI at the end of the year. Mm. Um, There's also the, you know, the training part and then the uh, KB, which is uh, knowledge management part. Um, So a lot of that is important, uh, not only to meet them, but also to, understand the why you know yeah. what is uh, what is the you know the leverage that you can have on them uh how do you help them to meet their business goals what are the business goals right because each business is quite different um i would say the structure um legacy kind of comes into play quite a lot so that's what i think yeah th- these are very, very valuable points for all founders on that journey and, and i think one thing that they learn one thing i found is that you know when you ask people for those kind of insights off the bat, it, you don't get the kind of insights that really are driving them. You get sort of logical answers. People don't want, want to look stupid. So, you know, why did you choose this technology? They'll give you the answers 
they think you want to hear that won't make them look stupid. But as you develop a, a relationship with that customer, as you spend time with them, as you're doing, going out and meeting them, you know, I believe that, uh, you know, insights are a function of relationships. So, you know, to get a real why question is to build over time and they'll start opening up and telling you why and you get a better insight into how the organization works. And you talked about things like KPI, you talked about things like, you know, organizational objectives. You'll start learning things about personal objectives within organizations as well. And all yes. of that comes over time, doesn't it? And, but what you're doing is going out there and building a relationship with clients, which is so important because, you know, I could easily survey or, you know, do a poll on my customers and they would give me some answers. But really, you know, people, as they say, buy on emotion and justify with logic, don't they? They already give you the logical answers. But yeah. in time, you learn the emotions behind, which it seems strange when we're talking about AI. But at the end of the day, it's human beings buying this technology, right? Yes. So you've got to get out there. You've got to build relationships with your customers to learn what are the real drivers, what are the real whys behind why they use this technology. And that comes over time and it seems like you're doing it the right way. So it's an inspiring message for founders out there that, you know, get off your ass and get out there and meet <laughs> your customers. You Although know. you're like risking yourself being, uh, yeah, like whipped, uh, but it's still a good. Exactly. Yeah. But you have to, you have to risk yeah. yourself because that's getting outside your comfort zone, isn't it? And that's really yeah. where you're going to find the insights. Yes, definitely. And sometimes I felt like um, I also now tend to understand, say, like, you know, if I go to an event and if I, you know, can talk to the CEO, you know, I only really want to make the job so much easier for my colleagues, right? Like, because they're, my team is really working on that uh, on a day to day basis. They're, you know, trying to figure out what the client really wants. And then, you know, if I talk to the CEO, it makes it, their job so much better and easier. Um, and I think it's really, uh, I mean, for me, it's a fear of, you know, getting rejected and, you know, introducing myself, uh, introducing myself uh, to the CEO, because usually they're, you know, big and powerful people. Um, but I think, you know, that's very much the, the least that I can do for my team in order to help them to uh, proceed. So right. that's very much. But that's a good mark of doing the right thing, though. I think it was the Seth Godin quote. Who paraphrase somebody else but something like you know do something every day that scares you you know yes. i think that that makes sense because you know that's a real sign of growth if if what you're doing is bringing up those kind of feelings like you're saying then you're doing the right thing you know mm. if you're not feeling that fear then you know you're not sort of growing the organization by growing yourself within that organization right but you know getting out there and having those meetings even though they're uncomfortable you know, you might think, why am I doing this? Well, that's exactly the right thing you need to be doing. Yeah, I think uh, one thing that really resonates with me is that actually founders need to scale themselves. Um, mm. And I think that's, that's very much true from uh, Miko's point because, uh, well, he built Sendas uh, and still the CEO. Um, and I mean, that's rare, right? Like you don't really mm. see um, sort of founders still become the CEO. Um, there's a few, you know, uh, cases out there, but it's not always true. And I think very much, you know, as a founder, you know, in the beginning, it's like very much being resourceful, you know, scrapping things together. Um, then, you know, when you have the team, you need to work on your management skills. And then when you, um, you know, meet investors, you need to sell the company, right? So mm -hmm. I felt like every single, uh, you know, milestone that I myself, you know, haven't gone through and I have to scale myself to understand what are the, you know, perils, you know, what are the things that I should avoid at a certain stage um, and helping the company also grow. Right. Um, and 
also, you know, being comfortable with working with much more experienced people than you are um, and accepting those um, uh, comments, uh, giving them comments, although um, you probably know the business better, but you're probably not in the industry as long as they do, right? So I think all of this is uncomfortable, but in a way that we have to scale ourselves. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. The idea of scaling yourselves as a founder, something we often don't think about, but something we can completely relate to, right? It's mm. great to put it in those contexts. That's Bianca Ho, everybody, co-founder at Claire AI. Bianca, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. I'm sure the listeners want to find out more about you. Where can we direct them? Yes. So um, say hello at Claire, C-L-A-R-E, uh, dot AI. Um, so that's our email. And then our website is Claire, C-L-A-R-E again, dot AI. Hmm. Fantastic. It's been great having you on the show, as I said. And you've been at this now for, well, a year and a half almost. So yes. it's still early days. Right? Early days, yes. <laughs> Not just for Claire AI, but also for Bianca Ho, I guess. You know, there's a lot more to this yeah. story, isn't there? It sounds like you're scaling yourself quite adequately. And I think there's a lot more chapters to this story. So please come back on the show. Thank you. Share your updates with us, especially... You know, I think with what you're doing in the, uh, the the vertical sectors that you're in, whether it's banking, insurance, retail, e-commerce and so on with, um, you know, your platform, I think that would be, you know, as, as we sort of established in this conversation, it's like, you know, you've really got an in with these organizations and opportunities to build trust. And from there on in, you know, you've got technology, which is really about solving problems, isn't it? So it could do so much more than what you're doing at the moment so i think it's exciting what the future holds for you so please come back on and share updates with us thank you thank you so much for having me on the show you've been listening to asia tech podcast find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com